Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post. And this week, we're going to connect the dots between Joe Biden in Washington, Xi Jinping in Beijing, and an ancient Greek historian whose work somewhere around the year 400 to 450 BC is being used to explain why the US and China are on a collision course for war. First, let's quickly scan what else has happened in another turbulent week of geopolitics. The military junta of Myanmar shocked the world by executing without trial four people, including veteran democracy activists, quickly bringing condemnation from around the world and from the UN Security Council. In the United Kingdom, the two contenders for the job of Prime Minister appear to be competing for who can announce policies most hostile to China and their efforts to sway the ageing members of the Conservative Party who will choose the replacement for Boris Johnson. The United Nations Human Rights Committee published its findings on Hong Kong, Macau, Georgia, Ireland, Luxembourg and Uruguay, but made the most headlines with its direction that the Hong Kong government take action to repeal the national security law and, in the meantime, refrain from applying it. Meanwhile, the aircraft carrier USS Ronald Reagan and its strike group, including the destroyer USS Higgins and the cruiser USS Antietam, continue sailing north in the South China Sea. While China announced it's built a law enforcement ship for the South China Sea. Its mission, to patrol the contested waters around the Spratly and Paracel Islands. And a Chinese community leader in Australia has become the first person charged and ordered to stand trial under new foreign interference laws for his considerable donation of money to a major hospital in Melbourne. But of course, the news dominating this week is that of the video call between Presidents Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. And that's where we're going to start. There was much more said in that call than the words playing with fire. And our US correspondent Owen Churchill has in-depth background to what was said, what was not said, and what comes next for these two leaders. He's also, of course, going to tell us more about the unannounced travel plans that are making almost daily headlines worldwide. That of US Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and a possible visit to this side of the world that has Taiwan on its list of destinations. And I'm also going to be joined by my colleague Xi Jiangtao to talk about the Thucydides trap. It's a theory developed just five years ago that declares, quote, when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, the resulting structural stress makes a violent clash the rule, not the exception. It's a theory that's been argued and critiqued by academics, but most interestingly, it's been quoted a number of times by Xi Jinping upon his previous visits to the US. It's a really interesting discussion, and Jiang Tao has a lot to share about what Chinese academics are saying about an American theory based on what was written by a Greek historian from 450 BC. Let's get to it. 
Owen Churchill is with our North American Bureau and has been covering this story from his side of the world, along with our China desk on this side of the world. Owen, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Jared. Let's start with the headlines. Joe Biden and Xi Jinping were on the phone for almost two and a half hours, but this morning I'm reading headlines from around the world and they've boiled this down to three words, playing with fire. Take us through what you know about what's been discussed. Absolutely. Well, it was on everyone's mind that a big part of this conversation was going to be Taiwan, because as was reported last week by the Financial Times, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is reportedly planning a trip to Taiwan next month, and she would become the the first Speaker of the House to visit the island since, I believe, the late 90s when Newt Gingrich made a visit. Um, so it's a hugely, um, hugely significant plan by her. It's obviously a, a very, very sensitive subject for, for Beijing, and they've been watching the increased engagement between the US and Taiwan with uh, a lot of angst, I would say. So we knew that that was going to be a big subject of the conversation today. And as we saw from the Chinese readout of the talk, it was very clear from Xi Jinping that they view this as a, uh, a critical issue. And he told Biden that the US should be clear-eyed about the fact um, that China will will resolutely defend and resist any any form of what they call external interference in China's affairs. So that was a big part of the conversation. Um, from the US side, we didn't hear a lot of details about how that exchange went. And interestingly, a, a US official speaking after the call kind of underscored the fact that this was rhetoric that we have heard before from Beijing, from Chinese officials. They love that metaphor about anyone who plays with fire is going to get burnt themselves. But I mean, the context is completely different this time around. The context being Pelosi, who is third in line to the president, um, planning to visit Taiwan. So that was, a, a, I think, a very large part of the conversation. And it was described by that official, that US official, as being quite direct and quite honest. Now, at the same time, while the Biden administration has said that it doesn't necessarily think this trip is a good idea, they've had a military assessment by the Pentagon, um, which has assessed that it might not be, um, you know, from a security standpoint, a very sensible idea. But at the same time, I mean, Congress is a, you know, it's a co-equal branch of government. The administration has no authority to direct Pelosi to go or not to go. And, and at the same time, Pelosi is, un, you know, as this story has developed, the pressure on Pelosi to kind of stick with this plan has only grown from a political standpoint. Now, you've got people from, Republic, from the Republican side of the aisle, even former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo coming out saying, I'll go with you, Pelosi. And she's reportedly kind of embraced that by, by inviting a, a senior Republican in the House to go along with her, the, the ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, McCall. So I think this is, you know, at some point, it's going to be very hard for Pelosi to find an off-ramp if she, if she did decide that she needed to step back from this plan. That's something that's, um, you know, a very interesting dynamic that's playing out and obviously finding its way into this leader-to-leader dialogue. And you mentioned Newt Gingrich there, and I was, and it's kind of been fascinating to see these elements within the Republican Party who have opposed everything the Democrats say and do. And if anyone remembers when Newt Gingrich was the Speaker of the House back in the 90s, he was possibly patient zero when he would talk about the toxicity of, of American politics. He visited Taiwan in 1997, but doesn't quite have the, shall we say, CV that Nancy Pelosi has, given that in 1991, she visited Tiananmen Square, unfurled a democracy banner. 
She's had 30-odd years of very close, very public engagement with all manner of activists from within mainland China, contact with Taiwan, Tibet. So it feels like, as you say, there's less and less opportunity for an off-ramp here. And I, I see today Rupert Murdoch's Fox News is now screaming, Pelosi can choose courage or cowardice with China in this age of you know culture wars in US politics. This really does seem this has blown up and really dominated or come to dominate the discussion about US-China relations. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you're spot on. And her trip, it it has, you know, it it, it basically exemplifies the degree to which Congress has really coalesced around this idea that the US needs to have a stronger policy when it comes to China and when it comes to supporting Taiwan. Um, you know, obviously Congress is bitterly divided on almost every other subject. And, you know, even when they do come together on certain legislative fronts, it tends to be, you know, a handful of Republicans rather than the whole caucus coming to support those legislative priorities of the administration. But China has really emerged as a unifying subject. Um, and that's, you know, that's really playing out with how they've how the Republican Party has really rallied behind Pelosi on this particular issue. It kind of looks like Joe Biden is almost being forced to play second fiddle here to Nancy Pelosi's plans. She's a very senior member of the House, of course. But the big issue for Joe Biden, the economy, the relationship with China and tariffs. Was there any mention or reference to Biden's will he or won't he plan to cut tariffs? Yeah, I think it was really interesting that tariffs was, you know, it was quite far down on the list of of what everyone was talking about. I mean, you compare that with a couple of months ago, that's, that was front and center of all conversations about the bilateral relationship. Um, but now with this, this you know, the, the whole Pelosi trip having dominated that discussion, tariffs, I mean, in terms of the readouts of the call and what we heard from US officials after the call, it wasn't discussed in much detail. And Biden is thought to have raised the US having, you know, these broad concerns about China's economic practices and how those might be impacting the US economy and US workers. But a natural discussion, let alone a negotiation about tariffs, wasn't actually on the cards. And it, and the, this US official who spoke to us after the call happened, they said that any decisions about tariffs, if and when that does happen, it wasn't at all predicated on this conversation. This conversation was kind of, you know, a separate attempt to manage the relationship, manage competition between the two powers. But it wasn't in any way a, a way for Biden to either negotiate with Xi Jinping or give him a heads up about any kind of decision on tariffs. Another thing worth mentioning is that, um, as we saw earlier, a report today about the U.S. economy came out. Um, the U.S. economy is experiencing a, you know, a significant slowdown, whether or not it's a recession. No one's quite willing to say from the administration, but there is a slowdown which might help with inflation. But um, you know, the U.S. is experiencing, you know, like China is as well. Every everyone is experiencing um, these inflationary pressures brought about by global supply chain issues and and the war in Ukraine and all of that. Um, so there is still, you know, a lot of pressure on the Biden administration. You know, just because it wasn't raised in the in in the conversation with Xi Jinping, it doesn't mean that this is not still a very high priority for them to figure out how they can address this uh, this inflation in the U.S. and you know, in what way tariffs might play a role in that. More importantly, a face-to-face meeting between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping. Was there any discussion of of this in the near or distant future? Yeah, this was, I think, one of the, probably the most concrete outcome of the conversation was an agreement 
by Biden and by Xi to work towards a face-to-face meeting, which would be the first of Biden's presidency um, and one of the first face-to-face meetings by Xi Jinping with the world leader since the pandemic began. Um, And I think that that outcome really speaks to the fact that there was all of this very fiery rhetoric around Taiwan, um, around around other issues like the, the kind of the rivalry, how the US considers the relationship with China to be one of kind of intense competition. But at the same time, both leaders appear to be quite committed to maintaining and deepening these lines of communication and even cooperation in some in some areas, for example, on climate, um, on global health, on counter narcotics. And I think that the, the Biden administration has basically settled into a policy whereby they're saying, we're gonna to continue to push China on all of these areas. We're gonna maintain the same kind of hardline posture towards China that emerged during the Trump administration. But we're gonna do that at the same time as trying to maintain these open lines of communications because we want to avoid any kind of misunderstanding from spilling out into, into a conflict. Um, and so one of the ways that they, they wanted to advance this was to, was to push for this face-to-face meeting. And I think what's interesting is that over the past year, we've seen from Beijing, we've seen a lot of Chinese diplomats say, well, you shouldn't expect our competition on X, Y, and Z while you're doing A, B, and C. But actually there are signs that that, that maybe is just rhetoric at this point. And you know, there was the big, the big climate agreement between the two sides in November in Glasgow last year, um, which I think the, the, the Biden administration is, is holding up as proof that they can continue this somewhat uh, bifurcated approach to the relationship going forward. Of course, there are other geopolitical concerns that are dominating Russia's war on Ukraine. What mention uh, was there of Ukraine in this phone call? Well, it was it was one of the three main components of the call. So it was definitely a substantive uh, component of the conversation. Um, now, we were told that there weren't any breakthroughs in this discussion, but of course, we all know that the U.S., has these, you know, ever since the invasion happened, the US has become increasingly frustrated with how China has responded to the invasion. China doesn't, you know, it doesn't call it an invasion at all. And in fact, in the Chinese readout of the conversation today, it was referred to as the Ukraine crisis rather than Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which I thought was a bit of, you know, an interesting bit of semantics there. The US has grown frustrated in that China has not condemned the invasion Um, It's voted alongside or abstained from votes in the UN about the the war. Um, And I'm I'm sure that that was raised with Xi Jinping in this call today. And then likewise, I mean, it's a very different situation, of course, but the US is also hoping that China steps up in terms of putting pressure on the the military government in Myanmar, which, you know, that, that situation came to the fore earlier this week when the junta executed four activists and there was this, you know, this wave of outrage amongst governments around the world at the UN rights groups about the killings. And, you know, unsurprisingly, given China's past comments on Myanmar, they 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 came out with a, a quite kind of cautious line about not wanting to interfere in other countries' affairs, calling on everyone in Myanmar to respect the the constitution and so on. Um, so we don't know whether that was raised. That's certainly becoming an increasing area of concern for US officials. And it's interesting that, you know, there's much more media coverage, social media coming out of Ukraine, but what's happened over the past years, 
in Myanmar has only be, really been brought you know, to the sort of focus of global attention with these executions. Of course, China shares a border with Myanmar and is crucial to its economy. What is the US trying to get from China, both out of Myanmar and in Ukraine? Is it, as you say, a statement of condemnation? What's, what does success look like, do you think, for the US asking China to, to intervene or at least make a comment about what's happening? Well, I think first and foremost, the US administration is looking for a more full-throated condemnation or a kind of hardening of rhetoric from Beijing about both of these issues, both about Ukraine and the situation in Myanmar. You know, I think the US has quite rightly assessed that Beijing does have significant influence in both of these situations. You know, China is um, it's, it's, a, it's a regional neighbor and it's, it's a huge economic partner for both of those countries. So that is, I think, first and foremost, that is what the administration is looking for from them. Um, and then at the same time with, with, with Russia, they're also counting or at least hoping that, that China will resist efforts by Russia to provide any kind of economic or you know, even military um, assistance um, or backfill any kind of any kind of uh, shortfalls. So I would say they're probably not expecting any kind of concrete actions by China in terms of, I mean, in, you know, certainly not in terms of any kind of sanctioning measures, because as as the US well knows, um, China is extremely opposed to any form of sanctions, even though it has issued some in retaliation to US sanctions um, on Chinese officials. I don't think that the US State Department is at all expecting China to go that far, but at the very least, they would hope to get more of a public expression of a direct critique of the actions of Moscow, the actions of the hunter in Myanmar. And let me just turn you back to your domestic politics, so to speak, but obviously focused on China. What's been going on within the US Congress and Senate? I know we're racing towards what they call the August recess, where the lawmakers go off for their summer holidays. Last episode, we heard from Rob Delaney talking about the massive raft of legislation, you know, this China-focused legislation. What's been happening on the legislative front within the US? Well, there was big news today in that the House of Representatives passed the CHIPS Act, which is a huge piece of legislation that would pour, I think, upwards of $50 billion into the semiconductor industry, the US semiconductor industry. You know, it's a big win for President Biden because he's suffered a lot of legislative setbacks um, obviously, you know, his big climate legislation was was tanked by Joe Manchin. That looks like it may be turning around now. Um, but he has had he has had a lot of roadblocks on the legislative front. So this was a big win in that department. And it was passed earlier this week by the Senate. And so with today's action in the House, it's basically done and dusted in Congress. Um, it can move to the White House to be signed into law by Biden. And this legislation, it looks to bolster the US semiconductor industry, but it's also put in a framework by the administration of a way to counter China and a way to pull critical supply chains out of China um, and to, in, to, to increase competitiveness of the US um, when it comes to that, that bilateral relationship. So I think even though there was not as much Republican support for the bill, as the administration had hoped, certainly in the, in the House, um, I think the administration is certainly presenting this as a big win for Congress coming together to pass legislation that will put the US um, on better footing. And it seems like both the governments within uh, Washington, D.C., within Beijing, 
have a big kind of October, November coming towards them. Both of them want to have significant wins if, you know, publicly uh, as well as policy-wise. There's going to be a lot to talk about over the next couple of months. Thank you for speaking with me today. Owen Churchill, thanks for your time. Cheers, Chad. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com slash newsletters. Now, before we get to the next part of the podcast, here's a quick 30-second background on this theory known as the Thucydides Trap. Thucydides was one of the first historians in history. He documented the 30 years of tension and resulting wars known as the Peloponnesian Wars between Greece and Sparta in the 5th century BC. The Thucydides Trap was coined by a modern-day political scientist, Graham Allison. Not too long ago, in 2017, He described it as the probability of war when an emerging power threatens to displace an existing superpower from dominating a region. And when you think of the South China Sea, the US and China, you can see how that's resonating. So let's have a chat with Xi Jinping. There's more to Graham Allison's theory of the Thucydides trap than just the inevitability of war between China and the US. And my colleague Xi Jinping wrote in depth on this topic last week. He's normally in our Beijing bureau, but today he's on the line with me from Hong Kong. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Jared. Now, Jingtao, to begin, this theory of the Thucydides trap is not just something that's passed around by academics. It's actually been raised publicly by Xi Jinping with previous US administrations. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. Uh, actually, Xi Jinping has shown personal interest in the concept and made a few remarks on at least three occasions, all happened before Trump's White House, including one on the eve of the inauguration ceremony of Trump in 2017. Actually, in January 2017, speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos for the first time, the Chinese leader said the Thucydides trap can be avoided as long as we maintain communication and treat each other with sincerity, without actually mentioning the U.S. or Trump. And in 2015, during his first state visit to the U.S. as president, uh, he was more upbeat about the U.S.-China relations, which remained largely on track, despite signs of increased friction and antagonism. Uh, When he famously said, there's no such thing as the so-called Thucydides trap in the world. But he also added that... uh, should major countries time again make the mistakes of strategic miscalculation, they might create such traps for themselves. He said that on the first day of his maiden state visit to the US as country's top leader in September 2015. And the earliest remark he made on this theory occurred in 2014, when he urged both sides to work together to avoid the consider this trap and its disastrous global consequences. And he said, seeking hegemony is not in the DNA of the country, given our long historical and cultural background. But then last year, in April last year, she warned of the worst case scenarios and long-term challenges that Beijing must get ready for, which was believed to be referring to possible armed confrontation with Washington amid the sprawling U.S. 
China tensions over Taiwan and the South China Sea, and the worst anti-China global backlash since the Tiananmen Square crackdown in 1989. And there's a lot to unpack there over the years from Xi Jinping speaking before he was president and now as president of of China. I'm curious that mention of strategic miscalculation. We're, of course, speaking the morning after this phone call between Presidents Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. There is this issue of Nancy Pelosi's possible visit to Taiwan, which could well be considered a strategic miscalculation. But Getting back to the Thucydides trap, I'm very careful to state that this is a theory, not a prediction. And like all theories, it's open to criticism and critique. And there's one particular critic I wanted to raise with you, and that's someone called Hal Brands, who said, quote, the impetus that led to war was not the impending threat of a hegemonic power being surpassed, but rather an emerging power lashing out when its rapid rise transmogrified into stagnation. And I'm interested what you think about this and how this analysis contrasts with the current economic and demographic issues facing Beijing for China. Sure, Jared. Actually, uh, it's worth noting that when the theory, I mean, the Thucydides trap theory, first emerged in 1980s, it used to refer to tensions between the US and then Soviet Union. And then when uh, Allison coined a phrase in 2012, he, he mainly refers to U.S.-China tensions. And you're right, uh, because it's true for both China and the United States, domestic politics is driving force now. And the biggest threat comes from within, according to most observers. Many have warned that the danger is that both the U.S. and Chinese government, they try to deflect domestic pressure by shifting attention to foreign affairs thus creating tensions and even a crisis in U.S.-China relations. For Beijing, actually from now to November, it is probably entering a sensitive period of greater uncertainties in the lead up to the once in a decade leadership reshuffle. While stability is crucial for Beijing ahead of the 20th Communist Party Congress later this year, the rumor mill has gone into overdrive, not surprisingly, given the mainland's secretive, highly centralized political system an intense jockeying for power from behind the scenes. The biggest question remains whether President Xi Jinping could secure a norm-breaking third leadership term and how far he will be further elevated that put him on a par with Mao Zedong. And more worryingly, the economic fallout from the prolonged COVID-19 crisis and China's worsening external environment is worse than expected, China's Premier Li Keqiang admitted last month. It raised, actually, many fears about an economic crisis, which coinciding with a more inward-looking and authoritarian approach to global affairs, threatens to interrupt China's continued rise in the past decades. Plus, we're seeing Beijing's tightening grip on media freedom and the freedom of expression in general, amid surging grievances over the zero-COVID policy and a deteriorating economy. And also, the rising nationalism in China especially against the backdrop of a weakened economy and zero COVID consequences, is very unhelpful when all you need is calm and wise diplomacy to avoid escalation of external tensions. Actually, many observers have warned that it limits the room for Chinese leadership to de-escalate, especially on highly charged issues like Taiwan. And actually, a recent Chinese study on Sunday confirmed that China's overseas investments, especially the ambitious Belt and Road project, has fallen victims 
of China's worsening economic slowdown, geopolitical tensions, and the rising anti-Chinese sentiments. Now, Zhengtao, I feel compelled to compare, as you say, Beijing's domestic political pressures with the pressures on Joe Biden. He has his own probably not as big as a Xi Jinping uh, moment coming in November with the midterms and a lot of pressure on his administration. But we talk about, you know, stagnation, domestic pressures. You know, there's the American economy. Is it in a recession or not? There's also talking about heightened nationalism. You know, we're seeing the likes of Republicans refusing to talk about Trump's attempted coup, and now Fox News desperate to talk about anything other than the January 6th investigation, all focused on Nancy Pelosi playing this as a moment, as the headline said, of courage or cowardice. So I guess that's one thing, but let's go back to this theory. You know, it was coined a couple of years ago, but Thucydides wrote his account in the 5th century, here we are in 2022, Zhang Tao. What do Chinese academics think about this trap that Graham Allison said is the rule, not the exception for great powers over the last 150 years? It's a great question, Jared, actually. Uh, the Chinese government and think tanks uh, largely see the concept as a Western narrative trap and an example of clear adversarial framing when it comes to China's rise. Many critics say that Thucydides trap is an overrated concept, and it is a new one, more or less similar to the power transition theory that international relations scholars have studied for decades. And they criticize it for being too simplistic and highly selective when it comes to history lessons from the past. Most experts actually believe the idea of a Thucydides trap is not an insurmountable, preordained law. And many believe it can be avoided because there are many presidents that have successfully avoided conflicts do exist. The real danger, according to Pang Zhongying, an international affairs analyst at Sichuan University, is that despite their public statements that they do not seek confrontation or new Cold War, both sides have done little to avoid the trap. Both China and the US appear to have braced themselves for a new Cold War that needs to that needs to be managed carefully to avoid a head-on collision and a sinking deeper into the Thucydides trap, effectively making it a self-fulfilling prophecy. According to Pang Zhongying, it will be more dangerous if China's rise is indeed being interrupted at a time of the decline of American leadership. He said China's continuous rise would actually help prevent Beijing and Washington drifting towards war. He also said that uh, now with China's prolonged economic slowdown, the world may be entering a period of greater uncertainty in the next five years. And this idea of avoiding this trap, I must note that Graham Allison's theory picks through all of these conflicts of great powers in history, but there was one exception to his rule, and that was actually the Cold War uh, between the USSR and the USA, which you know, went longer than the Peloponnesian War. It went for, you know, 50-odd years. Let me turn to options other than war. You know, the dominant Western media narrative is about an impending attack by the PLA upon Taiwan. But Zheng Tao, you spoke to another analyst who looked at a different option of how a potential conflict over Taiwan might play out. Can you tell us more about that? Actually, uh, Gao Luft, uh, head of Washington-based think tank, 
offered somewhat contrarian views on this question. He said a war with the U.S. will not put an end to China's global ascendance, and that China is capable of winning a war against the U.S. And、uh, he said the most likely scenario is China responding to a string of U.S. provocations, such as、uh, the sale of、uh, heavy weapons, ballistic missiles, and other game-changing weapons. Is、uh, China may try to impose a blockade on Taiwan, similar to what Kennedy did in Cuba 60 years ago, attempting to stop and search ships heading to the island. This would immediately put the countries on a collision course, and given the lack of guardrails, it will be very difficult to stop the escalation. Now, Jacques Tao, it's very interesting. There's people speaking about Joe Biden, his lack of popularity. With reference to the administration of Jimmy Carter, he was a one-term U.S. president, a Democrat. He was voted out, but he was one of the few presidents in a century's worth of U.S. presidents who never sent his country to war during his term. You know, looking at that and looking at the state of, of play now and communication between Biden and Xi Jinping, what are your thoughts about that? It's a great pity because、uh, we used to think that after decades of engagement and many twists and turns, China and the U.S. had figured out how to coexist and cooperate, while agreeing to disagree over their differences, and thus should be able to avoid being trapped in destructive tensions between an emerging power and established powers. But then here we are. It feels like ages ago, but in 2016, Taiping War. Who was President Hu Jintao's top foreign policy aide? Still talked about bilateral ties that should have no ceiling, but both sides need a floor to prevent the deterioration of their ties or even conflicts. So actually, it's the role of great leaders to find a way around such seemingly inevitability. If Xi Jinping is truly a great leader, to seek and willingly accept compromises to avoid the destruction of the nation's larger national interest. Why would Xi Jinping ever put all of China's immense and esteemed developmental progress at risk, especially when it is evident that Biden is both willing and eager to find an off-ramp? Changing the course of history has always depended on flexible and creative leadership. It remains to be seen whether such leadership actually exists in China and the U.S. today. That's fascinating, Jing Tao, and I feel like we can look at this phone call between. Joe Biden and Xi Jinping, and these plans for them to meet. In contrast to the idea of how Vladimir Putin is now persona non grata, and no Western leader wants to be seen or heard talking with him, as long as these leaders are still talking, communicating, and of course the great difference between the old USSR, the modern day Russia, and its relationship with the US compared to China, is that. China and the U.S. are deeply entwined, economically, you know, culturally, if not historically. So, there's at least some optimism ahead. Can you get me a, a sense of what you got from this phone call and how it was reported? I, you know, at the top of this podcast, spoke about the phrase "playing with fire" was something that's been repeated over and over again by the Western media coverage of this phone call. What's your sense of? What came from this phone call? Is there a sense of, if not de-escalation, at least detente between these two leaders of these countries? I think it's still a, a bit premature to talk about detente. 
but it's a good sign that uh, the leaders uh, talked. And uh, I think it's uh, also a good sign that they're still discussing the prospect of a face-to-face -face meeting. They're first in, uh, since Biden took office in Thailand in November during uh, the APEC summit. But the question remains how far this sort of uh, positive momentum can last given the increasingly adversarial tensions between the two countries. Because the danger is real when we look at the circumstances surrounding uh, Speaker Pelosi's uh, possible Taiwan visit. We're actually looking at uh, a possible fourth Taiwan Strait crisis. So I really think leadership matters in this case. It's up to both Xi Jinping and Biden to find a way to de-escalate and avoid a head-on collision, which will be mutually destructive. Well, exactly that, Jing Tao. And it's not, of course, just the US and China. There's all the other nations around the world. There's, of course, the neighboring countries, Japan, South Korea, all watching very closely what goes on in the Taiwan Strait and, as you say, the possibility of a fourth Taiwan Strait crisis. Exactly, Jared. Actually, former U.S. Secretary of State uh, Harry Kissinger warned in 2019 that an unconstrained military conflict between China and the U.S. could be worse than the previous two world wars. Actually, uh, with ambiguity over each other's bottom lines in the absence and in the absence of an effective crisis management mechanism. There's no certainty that both sides would successfully de-escalate after engaging. Many experts, including Kissinger and Allison, have warned. We can only hope they keep talking, and I hope that we get to speak again. Xi Jingtao, we really appreciate the depth of your analysis. We will, of course, continue to read it at scmp.com along with the rest of the team from China Desk. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Derek. That's all for this week. And once again, remember the latest news, the best analysis from the people you hear on this podcast and the global team they work with is there for you right now at semp.com. And thank you wherever you are around the world for listening to us. We've got a lot of listeners in the USA, but also Germany, Canada, Australia, the UK, Netherlands, Malaysia, Brazil, and of course, Hong Kong. And there's a few people possibly listening via VPN out of mainland China. Thanks for tuning in. We really appreciate it. And we really hope you're managing to deal with the Northern Hemisphere heat wave, as well as this global third wave of Omicron. Don't give in to pandemic fatigue. Keep your mask on. Stay safe. Bye for now. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.